0: In 1918, while the U.S. was enmeshed in a global war, a woman in Pittsburgh came into a restaurant with a scale. Not a bathroom scale, a tiny scale, the kind you use to weigh food. And she started to check out the weight of the restaurant's dinner rolls. But she didn't just weigh their rolls, she weighed rolls in other Pittsburgh restaurants, too. And restaurant owners started getting worried.
1: There was a lot of informal surveillance. People were um, encouraged, in some cases, to report on neighbors. And a lot of people very eagerly did. They say, oh, I saw, my, I saw my neighbor eating ice cream. Helen Zoe Veit
0: is an associate professor of history at Michigan State University, who has written extensively about this moment, a little bit more than a century ago, when morality became
1: attached to food, to thinness, even to deprivation. One of the things that struck me, in fact, was how eager some people were to sort of take part in this surveillance, this you know reporting on other people in their communities. It was you know know, I think born of patriotism in some cases, but also struck me as a little creepy.
0: Veit is the author of Modern Food, Moral Food, Self Control, Science, and the Rise of Modern American Eating in the Early 20th Century. She says government pressure to reduce food consumption during the First World War would forever change how Americans viewed eating. Howard Heinz, who also lived in Pittsburgh and it probably won't surprise you to learn was part of the famed Heinz Condiment Empire, created a state food police to ensure that people weren't overindulging.
1: Americans had to eat less of many of their favorite foods, they had to eat less wheat, less butter, less pork, less beef, so that those commodities could be shipped to Europe. And of course, most people didn't want to eat less of those things. So the government really launched a pretty persuasive and pretty successful propaganda campaign aimed at getting Americans to think about food as a moral issue. And we see this whole generation of Americans really starting to do things differently when it came to food.
0: At almost exactly the same time, the science around food was changing. Nutrition was in its early days. People were starting to hear about things called calories and the notion that different foods had different levels of energy. The difference between a high-calorie slice of chocolate fudge cake and a low-calorie arugula salad, that hadn't been quantifiable before. Now you could contrast indulgent choices versus perhaps more virtuous ones. And, says Helen Vite, A third thing was happening. A technology was rising that would recast how we thought about how we looked. In many ways, the silver screen didn't alter the ideal, it created the ideal. And when you put that into a stew with new science and the morality of reducing consumption, it might not be too surprising that America's relationship with food
1: was entirely reinvented. That was one of the fascinating parts of looking at this period, is that for much of history, having a bit of excess weight was seen as a wholly positive thing. It was an indication of prosperity. It was a margin of error against hard times. But by the 1920s, you really see this rocketing into popularity of a weight loss culture, a thin, ideal culture that really lasted for the century that followed. I think the moralization of food did have something to do with it, in part because it really encouraged people to think about food in terms of metrics, in terms of numbers. That was part of it. The fact that you could think about calories, the fact that you could even think about dress size. But before this era, most people had made food clothes to fit their body. Mm-hmm. By this period, people were going into stores and buying clothes with numerical sizes and, you know, they could say, "Oh, I'm I'm bigger than this or I'm smaller than this." Of course, you also have things like the emergence of a real visual culture. So you see visual advertisements, you have moving pictures, you have magazines and newspapers that were much more visual than ever before. So you're just seeing other people's bodies in a way that they hadn't been on display like that before. And at the very same time, America was industrializing. People were more sedentary. There were automated forms of transportation like cars and trolleys, elevators. People were just moving less. So and their and food was more abundant. And and that made more people apt to have excess weight. And there was this perfect storm that created this weight loss culture right around the same time.
0: Yeah, but if people are apt to have excess weight, and for a long time it had been like a positive thing if you had a little bit of extra weight, um, how did it all of a sudden become a positive thing to be really thin?
1: Well, another thing that was happening at this time was that Epidemic diseases were really going down. Epidemic disease had been the leading cause of death in the 19th century. But because of vaccinations and other public health measures, all of a sudden, people were less likely to die of a wasting disease before people had associated thinness with illness. And so that association was going away. And that, that was one big factor.
0: Um, you write about um, a, a diet book that uh, a quote from it really caught my eye. Uh, this, uh, this woman who wrote about successfully losing weight. Um, and she said, quote, there have been times when the sight of a potato has brought tears of longing to my eyes. And she said, um, there have been times when this is a quote, she surreptitiously patted the soft cheek of a Parker House roll. Now, It seems there like she's going to great lengths for thinness. She must have thought it's really worth it.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I think the stakes were high. They were increasingly high for men and women, but increasingly women were bearing the brunt of these expectations to be thin. And this idea, this idea, too, that being thin was a physical expression or a physical result of having Uh self-control. In some ways, the more abundance there was generally, the more people had access to plenty of food, the more socially rewarding it was to be thin. And um, this woman uh, whose memoir you were just quoting, um, she had been overweight. Overweight was a new term in this era, too. It had come into being right around the turn of the century. And it's interesting, too, because, of course, to be overweight implies that there's a normal weight. And this was all predicated on this other new science, which was the science of statistics. This woman who wrote the memoir had herself been overweight and then had lost weight. And she was writing a weight loss memoir, which was a a somewhat new genre at the time, um, an increasingly popular one, where people really, I think because they had themselves been overweight, had this kind of freedom to say how horrible it was to be overweight. And, and this woman and others like her who wrote similar books described all that they gained by losing weight. They said mm. they gained energy, they gained sex appeal, their marriages were happier. People also at the time claimed that they were more intelligent from having lost weight. There were these bogus theories about fat getting into brain cells, which were not true, but um, people at the time said that they were, or believed that they were. Now, how, how this all relates back to World War I is that the whole food conservation campaign on the home front was all related to self-control. Again, there was no formal rationing program. So the government urged people to control themselves and said, if you are really patriotic, if you're truly patriotic, you will voluntarily give up eating foods that you like so that we can send them to Europe. This will help the war effort. It will help the allies. It will help starving European children And some propaganda said, and a lot of individuals certainly said, if you're fat during World War I, that's a sign that you're not patriotic enough, Hmm. that you're not self-controlled enough. And people further made a political argument. They said, and after all, what is democracy but a form of self-control? It's people Hmm. controlling or governing themselves. To be really ready to be a mature participant in a democracy, you have to be able to exercise self-control. And if you're overweight, that's proof that you can't do it. So there was a pretty, a pretty pointed moral argument being made at this
0: time. So you've got this kind of mixing of being virtuous with being thin with being patriotic. And this Absolutely. maybe the first time that all these things have been linked in some sort of weird chain together. Absolutely, yes. I'm Kara Miller, talking to Helen Zoe Veit. She's the author of Modern Food, Moral Food, Self-Control, Science, and the Rise of Modern American Eating in the Early 20th Century. We're going to pick up this conversation after a break, uh, and we'll look at one more way in which our modern approach to food has completely changed, how we feed kids. Now, obviously, kids are picky eaters, but apparently that's only become something that's obvious in the last few decades. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And remember, if you want to know more about what's on the show each week, what we're reading, you can follow us on Twitter at iHubRadio. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. You probably know a kid who's a picky eater. Maybe it was you. Or your brother or that kid down the street that ate nothing but jelly sandwiches for three years straight. It's too crunchy. It's not crunchy enough. You cut it wrong. It touched the eggs. The spaghetti is too long. And food companies, while they might not care a whole ton about nutrition, they know kids. It's the easiest because it's the cheesiest. Kraft. For the win-win. I'd give him anything just so he would eat something. My son wasn't getting all the necessary nutrients, so his pediatrician recommended Pediasure. Pediasure is a source of complete... Except here's the weird thing. That whole notion of kids
1: being picky eaters, it was invented just a few decades ago. It's a relatively new phenomenon. And when I say relatively new, I mean since roughly the 1940s or so. Helen Zoe Veit is a scholar who focuses
0: on the history of American food, and she's an associate professor at Michigan State University.
1: In the past, American children used to eat virtually anything that adults would eat, if adults would let them eat it. Um, In fact, in the 19th century, the big emphasis was that children were too omnivorous for their own good. They were they were childish eaters. Americans back then thought they were childish eaters, but that meant something different. What people thought back then was that to be a childish eater meant that you were greedy, you were curious, you were non-discriminating, you would eat anything. It's an almost perfect reversal of what we now think about children's food. Vite has
0: chronicled how Americans began looking at food radically differently just about 100 years ago. Against the backdrop of World War I, when civilians were encouraged to save food for soldiers and starving people in Europe, food became tied in with morality. People who truly supported democracy, the thinking went, would restrain themselves from indulging in too much wheat or pork or sugar, and it would show on their bodies. They would be thin. And this is the moment when people began to idolize thinness, something that had not previously been true. Then, a generation later, another new food paradigm emerged, the notion that kids hardly liked any foods, so we really needed to cater to the few things that they would eat. This, says Vite, was an invention of the 1940s, but it's become so absorbed into our belief system that many of us think, well, that's just the way kids are, right?
1: We see picky eating now in a way... We didn't used to, and there's there's an example that I like to use, or a comparison, which is that in our culture we don't see children's refusal of clothing. That's not we don't see that as an important stage. We don't see that as a stage at all. Okay. Children everywhere you look are wearing clothes. Right. However, every parent I know, if you actually ask them, would say if they had thought about it. Oh yeah, my my child at one point really struggled to put clothes on. They didn't want to wear their clothes. Maybe it was the middle of winter. And they refused to wear their snow boots. But I, I insisted that they wear their snow boots because it was snowy outside. Right. You know, what was I going to do, carry them to the car and then carry them to school? That was impossible. I, I would say that, you know, A, I could imagine 100 years from now, you know, potentially in a different culture, people saying, well, obviously there's, a, there's an important developmental stage where kids don't really want to wear clothes and you know it would be cruel to insist that they wear clothes <laughs> whereas and whereas now what we're doing is is kind of the equivalent of carrying our kids for for many years when it comes to food we we go to great lengths many of us we cook separately we buy different things and we feed them things often that we don't necessarily think are good for them physically we don't hmm. think they're the healthiest food but we sort of think we have to do that because we think kids are naturally picky it's not just historically that you can see, you know, counter examples, you can look in different parts of the world and you can see that kids in other places eat really differently from American kids. I would also say, of course, there are biological elements to this. Virtually all children, I think, have some degree of neophobia. Neophobia means being scared of new things. Okay. But in our culture, we often just assume that that neophobia is, is an intrinsic dislike. Whereas lots of other cultures focus on teaching kids to acquire those tastes Hmm. as just part of learning how to eat, in other words, in toddlerhood. That's a really different model than we have.
0: Hmm. So, okay, so if this uh, switch occurred around the middle of the 20th century that people all of a sudden started thinking of kids, American kids, as picky eaters, and even Americans hadn't thought about that before, um, what – like, what happened? What brought that about? <laughs> if, the, if if it had been so clear, like, let's say you were an adult in the 40s, and it was clear to you that when you were a kid,
1: kids ate whatever, why wouldn't that keep being perpetuated? Right. Well, it wasn't an overnight switch. You see it kind of happening slowly for a variety of reasons. It's definitely uh, many factors are involved. You do see some people in the 30s and the 40s and 50s saying, gosh, kids don't eat like they used to. But you can't force them. One thing that people began to think is that asking a kid to go hungry, in other words, if a kid wouldn't eat their dinner, standard behavior for for previous generations had been, well, there's nothing else to eat. Or if you don't eat what's served, we're not giving you anything else to Mm -hmm. eat. People came to think of that as a form of corporal punishment kind of akin akin to sending a kid to bed without supper because they had been bad. Those Mm -hmm. two concepts got really mixed up. To refuse to give a kid an alternative food if they refused something the first time came to be seen as cruel and as psychologically damaging. Hmm. Uh, In fact, the whole field of psychology was really important to this, the the mainstream acceptance of psychology and the belief that you could damage kids psychologically. Um, One of the biggest proponents of this was Benjamin Spock, who was— a total bestseller in the mid-20th century and I think had a lot to do with making parents hesitant to enforce strict rules about eating. One other factor I'll just mention was milk, which we tend to think of as a pretty innocuous, <laughs> innocuous thing and something that's important for children. Right. People started talking about it as being important for children in the early 20th century and started saying that children had to have a lot of it. A quart a day was the standard recommendation, even for, for young children, toddlers. And one of the results of this, of course, was that children whose bellies were often filled up with whole milk you know, in their afternoon snacks yeah. started coming to meals less hungry than they had ever been. And that was another really important factor that made kids more likely to refuse food. And today, of course, it's still really common for children to have lots of snacks and to come to meals probably significantly less hungry in many cases than children did in the past.
0: Um You're a parent, uh, and I I assume, uh, because I am too, that you're surrounded, even if it's not at your own house, by, you know, animal crackers and fruit roll-ups and all that stuff because, you know, kids. Um, uh, How does what you know—obviously, you know a lot more about context and history than probably most parents Um, around—how does that change— if it does, like how you feed your kids or how do you think, if you were giving advice, how do you think it should change how we feed our kids?
1: Yes, I have three children, and it's definitely informed, you know, how we have our meals. I I try to to make them appealingly hungry before meals. You know, I try not to give <laughs> too many snacks right before we eat. It's not always possible. I try not to see pickiness. You know, as we discussed before, when they refuse food, and they refuse food a lot, especially when they were young and learning to eat, I really tried to take the perspective of saying, oh, you don't like this right away. Let me tell you why I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that bitter taste. That's that's really strong. And I love how it's, you know, it's different from this kind of lemony taste over here. Mm-hmm. When my oldest child was young, we spent a year in France on sabbatical. And the feeding model for kids there is quite different. And there's a lot more emphasis on teaching kids to eat normal food, in other words, what, what we would call adult food. And um, I also gained confidence from that experience that you really can teach kids to like things that a lot of people would not even begin to think they would like. And um, it's been pretty successful. It's, mm. and, it's, and I have to say, too, it's just it's easier for parents. I think parents, if they're hearing this, it sounds like such a chore to have to like have these battles but actually, it's not. It's not a battle if if you can if you can teach kids to like it. And and again, I want to emphasize that it's not. It's not about forcing kids to eat something. It's about teaching them to like it. And if if you can do that, it's just it's just better and easier for everybody.
0: We talked about this coming together of uh, morality with food. You know, around the time of World War One do you think when you think about food and morality today which still i i think it's still very coupled we we talked a little bit about like oh it's it's virtuous to eat this and it's kind of sinful to eat this right um do you feel like you wish morality and food would come uncoupled to some degree now
1: oh in some ways yes i mean i i think there are major problems with ideas about thinness in our culture i'm all about Health, but I, you know, I think feelings about thinness and the importance of being thin in our culture and the badness of not being thin. That that strike me as being like bigotry. Mm. I, I just don't see any other word for them. I, you know, at the same time, I acknowledge that there are, you know, it's not just imaginary the link between diet and health um, and certain chronic diseases. I, I fully acknowledge that, but it's there. Are, there's real prejudice around issues of body weight that I think I would love to see (laughs) go away and be Hmm. uncoupled. At the same time, I think there are places where I would love to see more morality when it comes to food, um, especially with the environmental impact of what we eat. I think some people are are increasingly aware of this. Maybe lots of people are increasingly aware. I really wish that it were even more widespread. I think it's one of the most important things that we can do is to think more about what we eat and its effect on the earth.
0: Helen Veit is an associate professor of history at Michigan State University. She's also the author of Modern Food, Moral Food, Self-Control, Science, and the Rise of Modern American Eating in the Early 20th Century. Helen, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
0: On our website, we're going to have more about how our food and attitudes towards food changed in the first half of the 20th century, including a deep dive into one of the first foods that was created basically in a lab, Crisco. That was an offering that was cooked up, you might say, after a lot of scientific research by the company Procter & Gamble. And when Crisco was unveiled in 1911, it was pretty revolutionary. Helen White says lots of consumers probably had no idea what was in Crisco. There were also no food labels required until the 1960s. And it set a trend for foods like Spam and Fruit Loops and Cheetos, which lots of consumers know about, but what's in them? Uh, that might be a little bit more mysterious to most people who actually buy them at the store. That story is at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.